Hear now the written word of the living God. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not count that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass will wither and the flowers will fall, but the word of God stands forever. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, this is your word. It is true in all that it says and teaches. Lord, may we hear you today through the word of God. Open our ears and our hearts to receive it. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus, Lord, draw that one savingly to yourself today. As Christians grow us, change us, mold us, shape us into your image. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as most of you all know by this point, I'm a huge sports fan. It was great. A few weeks ago, I got to uh, meet up with uh, uh, Jason Hines and, and Andy Suttle. We gathered together at my house. We watched the NBA Finals. We loved it. All, all of us loved that time. I'm anticipating already college football season. I can't wait for the Tennessee Volunteers to beat those South Carolina Gamecocks, Carol, and we're going to get redemption over South Carolina this year because we should have won last year. Just, I, I can't wait. I, I love sports. I love playing with my kids getting out in the yard and shooting basketball with Brock. Uh, I, I found Carolina courts over here. I can go bump volleyball with Macy. By the way, that's the biggest facility I've ever seen in my life. It's amazing. And, of course, there's, there's tackle football with Jack because he's just a physical kid. He, he loves to tackle. I, I love sports. I love being around it. And I mention that because as we read the 13 letters of the Apostle Paul, you know what we find? Paul must have been a sports fan. He really must have been, because there are many occasions in his writings that he uses a sports analogy or an athletic illustration to teach us how to live the Christian life. He does it over and over and over, and being a sports guy, being a coach, that, that really hits home with me. I hope it hits home with you. Let me give you a few examples of how Paul does this. In 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about his desire to live a faithful Christian life, he talks about boxing. Here's what he says. He goes, I do not fight like a man beating the air. And the illustration there is boxing. In Ephesians 6, you're probably familiar with this passage. As he's getting ready to teach us about the armor of God. He talks about wrestling. He says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Another athletic illustration. Another one is right before he died, Paul gives Timothy some instruction and he talks about fighting. And he tells Timothy, I've fought the good fight. 
So whether it's boxing or, or wrestling or, or, or fighting, he brings sports analogies into the Bible, but probably his favorite analogy, maybe the one he uses more than any, is that of a foot race, that of running and striving. You probably remember from 1 Corinthians, he says, I do not run like a man who's running aimlessly. He says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, finish the course. This foot race you've started, finish it. He even said to the Galatians, you had been running well. So foot race, he picks that up again and again throughout the Bible. And beloved, I mentioned all these sports and specifically I mentioned foot race today because a foot race is what you find in your text today. It's the illustration, it's the analogy that Paul is using to describe the Christian life. He says this in verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me. It's an athletic illustration of running a race. So today, as we look at this text, I want you to see why Paul uses the example of a foot race to describe the Christian life. And as we do that, I want you to see at least three points Paul makes about the foot race of the Christian life. The way our sermon breaks down today is this. First of all, I want you to see the description of the foot race. He describes it to us, the description of the foot race. Secondly, I want you to see pressing on in the race. And then third and finally, a mature understanding of the race. So three things, a description of the race, pressing on in the race, and a mature understanding of the race. So look with me at that first point, the description of the race. I actually want to jump back one verse to a verse we looked at last week. Let me read again verse 11 from last week. And verse 12 from today. Look with me at the text. Last week we learned that Paul said that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You know, any athlete who runs a, a race, that athlete should be able to describe the aspects of the race. For instance, he should be able to describe where the starting line is. He should be able to describe and know where the finishing line is, right? He needs to know where he's going to start, where he's going to stop. He also needs to be able to describe how to conduct himself in between, right, between the start and the stop. And maybe most importantly, he needs to know the reason he's running. Why am I doing this? The reason for his running. Beloved, the Apostle Paul answers these questions today as it applies to the Christian life. Look at it with me. You see, the first thing Paul describes to us, what he knew in his own heart, in his own life, he knew his starting point. He knew where God got a hold of him. Look at the end of verse 12. There's a phrase there I want you to know, I want you to cling to. 
He says this at the end of verse 12, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You know what he's saying? That God in his sovereignty reached down into Paul's life and took hold of it. That God made Paul his own. That God gave Paul this starting point to run the race of Christianity. And I know many of you here today, you're familiar with the story of Paul's starting point, aren't you? The Bible tells us that Paul wasn't always Paul. He was Saul. And Saul was a Jew. In fact, he was a Pharisee. And he was so much a Pharisee that he hated Christians. He hated Christianity. The Bible tells us that he would spend his life persecuting Christians. He would arrest them. He would even kill them. And in Acts chapter 9, the Bible says he was on one of those adventures going towards Damascus to persecute the church. But that's the moment where God got a hold of him, that God made him his own. Because Acts chapter 9 tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ shows up and counters Saul at the time. He throws him off his horse and he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's response was, who are you, Lord? And from that moment on, God had made Saul his own. He changed his name. He changed it to Paul. And he took that great persecutor of the church and made, us, and made him into the, maybe the greatest missionary we have ever known. God took hold of him. And as Paul remembered back to that point, he says, that's my starting point. That's where I started following the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, from that point, he could think back. He knew the Old Testament. He could think back to all those Old Testament saints who were before him. And he could see their starting point where God got a hold of their lives. He could think about Abraham, couldn't he? When God called Abraham to leave his homeland and to go to that promised land, that was the moment, beloved, for Abraham where God got a hold of him. God made him his own. He could remember Moses. Moses started out as that little baby floating in the Nile. God already had a plan for him right then, didn't he? And then later on, it was confirmed with Moses standing in front of that burning bush. Moses, you go to Egypt. You go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. God was making Moses his own. Well, God made David his own, didn't he? Remember when Samuel came to Jesse's house? And Jesse brought out his boys one by one. Here's the next king, started with the oldest. Samuel said, no, that's not him. No, that's not him. No, that's not him. He got to the end and said, don't you have any more boys? Well, Jesse said, well, yeah, I got this, I got this one. But see, he's out there in the field being a shepherd. He's tending the flock. You know, the idea of you probably don't want to talk to him anyway. Samuel said, bring him on in. And right then and there, Samuel anointed him, said, David, David, he's the next king. You see, God was making David his own right then and there. We think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist became God's own even in the womb of his mother. He leaped for joy in the presence of Jesus. We think about Lydia. We're in Philippians right before the Philippian church was started. Lydia was there in Philippi in Acts 16. God in his word says that he opened Lydia's heart. He made her his own. Gave her that starting point. And just like Paul 
knew his starting point. All these Old Testament and even New Testament saints knew their starting point. They knew where the, the race began for them. I have a question for you. Do you know your starting point? Do you know that God has got a hold of you or are you just going through the motions? Do you know that you have trusted Christ by grace through faith, that you've received him as your Savior and Lord? Has God done that work in your heart? I pray that he has. If he hasn't, today's the day of salvation for you. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So he knew his starting point, but secondly, he knew his finishing point. That was back in verse 11. We looked at that last week. Paul anticipated something in his future, this future resurrection, when Jesus would, would come back and we would be raised to life and spend eternity with God in heaven. We called it glorification, where the presence of sin in our lives would be completely removed. It was a heavenward call that the race would not be complete until we arrived in glory. So he knew his starting point. He knew his finishing point. But what about the reason? What's the goal? What's God trying to do between, or with, with this whole idea of the race between the starting point and the finishing point? What's the goal of all of this? Paul specifically tells us, and he tells us more completely and more fully in the book of Romans. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Look, listen carefully to this verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What's the goal of the Christian life? that God would take you, that he would take me, and that not only would he save us from our sins and declare us righteous, but then through this race that he would conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Christ-likeness, that was his goal. That through life God would mold us and shape us and make us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would say it this way, yes, God's goal for me is Christ's likeness, but I know I haven't reached that yet. I know I won't be perfect until I get to heaven. Look at verse 12, the way he says this. He says it this way. Verse 12 says, not that I have already obtained it or I'm already perfect. In other words, he knew he wasn't there yet. He knew that he wasn't perfectly like Christ. He knew that God was working on him every single day that he would die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Do you remember a couple months ago an example I shared with you about a man in Deirdre's fitness class? He walked up to her one day. He knew Deirdre was a Christian. He walked up to her one day, and in the conversation, he basically said that he had stopped sinning. <laughs> yeah, I'm, i got to bite the finger. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to say anything. He had stopped sinning. And he was basically telling her that he had climbed that mountain so high that he had reached the top, and basically he was perfect, that he didn't need to grow anymore, that he basically plateaued. 
And I think about that phrase and I look at this verse and here's what the Apostle Paul says, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Paul knew that God was still working on him. He knew that every single day he needed to be conformed to the image of Christ. And for Paul in his life, he was seeing more of a sin, not less of a sin, as he grew in Christ's likeness. Dr. Kelly would say it this way, in this life, you will never be an alumni of the church. You can't reach that point where you graduate and say, I don't need to grow anymore. God is always still working on us. So the point being the prize, Christ-likeness, we're not going to get to be fully Christ-like till we're with the Lord. So we might ask the question, you might ask me, okay, Adam, we, we know our starting point. We know when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we know our ending point in heaven with the Lord. What about the here and now? Paul makes us aware in this text of how to live the Christian life here and now. And he says, just like a foot race, there needs to be a yearning. There needs to be a striving, what he calls pressing on. There needs to be pressing on in the race for the Christian. And, of course, this is our second point. Look at it with me again, verses 13 through 14. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, if the goal is Christ-likeness, Paul says we need to press on towards that goal. You see, not only does a runner need to know his starting point and his finishing point, not only does he need to know the reason for which he is running, but that runner needs to give an all-out effort in the race. He doesn't need to be lazy or apathetic. He needs to strive forward with every fiber of his being in the race. It's what Paul calls pressing on. In theology, it's what we call our sanctification. You see, Paul didn't believe in a salvation that was separated from a persevering faith. The perseverance of the saints that we call it. He knew that believers should be dwelling, abiding in Christ. He knew what Jesus said in Matthew 10, that believers should stand firm to the end. But according to this text, beloved, pressing on for the Christian, for me and you, it involves at least two requirements. I want to show them to you in the text. First of all, it involves forgetting what's behind. Look at the text. The middle of verse 13 says, forgetting what lies behind. I have a question for you. As you're running a race, what do you risk when you look behind you? Let me tell you a story. I was about 10 years old. I was a Cub Scout. And I remember we had a, it was like a cubbery day. I can't remember what it was called. But all the Cub Scouts in the area got together on this big field. 
and we had all these competitions. There was a, a baseball throw and, and a football kick, all these different competitions, but one of the competitions was a foot race. And I know I don't look like it right now, but back in my day, when I was 10, I was pretty fast. And I was excited to be part of the foot race. And there were so many Cub Scouts there that day that you had to qualify for the finals. So I went through all these qualifications in the foot race to to get to the finals, but I made it. I made it to the finals. There were six of us. I'll never forget this. I vividly remember this. And I remember being part of that foot race. And and, and I lined up over here, and I saw my starting point, and I looked out there, and I I saw my finishing point, and I looked to my right, and I checked out the competition over here. I looked to my left, checked out the competition over here, and you know what I said? I can win this race. I got this. There's no doubt in my mind. I can win this race. So I lined up, and they said, on your mark, get set, go. And man, I took off. And I will tell you right now, I had the lead. I was out in front. But that's when I made my mistake. You see, as I was running that race, you know what I did? I took this head, and I turned around like this. I wanted to see if anyone was gaining on me. And then as I was running, I took my head and I turned this way and I looked behind me to see if anyone was gaining on me. And I did that the whole race. And then we finally crossed the finish line and guess what? I did not win the race. The boy to my right had passed me when I was looking back. You see, when I was looking back, I lost my speed I lost my focus, I lost my direction, and ultimately, I lost the race. And I remember that day, my mother was there that day, she watched me run, and she came up to me and she said, Adam, why in the world were you looking over your shoulder? Why were you looking to your right and looking to your left? Why didn't you just look straight ahead and go, son, go? And I realized her counsel was right on because as I looked over my shoulder, it caused me to slow down. And I lost that race. And I'll never forget that. And when I read this text right here, I always think about that story, beloved, because in the Christian life, Paul picks up this foot race and says, as you are running the race, as you go from your start line to your finish line, Paul says, don't you look back. Don't you look back. You need to forget what is behind. Beloved, there are so many things from our past in life where as we're moving forward, we want to turn around to our right and turn around to our left and focus on what's behind us. Sometimes we do this. We turn over our right shoulder and we look back to our past of all the good that's happened. Maybe there's some virtuous deeds we've done. Maybe there's a mission trip we went on where we made an impact for Jesus. Maybe there's a past experience in ministry that happened sometimes 5, 10, 20 years ago. And we focus on those victories, but as we focus on the past, we lose concentration for the present. Y'all know I was a coach for a long time. 
And I will tell you that as a coach, I loved playing a team who had just won a big game the week before. You know why? Because I knew what those boys were thinking. As I'm preparing to play them Friday night, I know the opposing team, I know they're thinking about the win they just had the week before. They're thinking about the great tackle they made. They're thinking about the, the pass they made, the touchdown they scored. And I know as a coach, every moment that that team thinks about the pass game, they're not thinking about playing me. And I'm excited to go play that team. I'm not excited when my team has a big victory and I'm preparing for the next week. Why? Because I know my boys are doing that. And by the way, as a coach, I'm doing that too. I'll sit and watch the film. I'll, I'll look at that great tackle that David made or that great throw that Sam made, and I'll say, man, didn't I do a good job coaching these boys last week? And every moment I do that, I'm not preparing for what's ahead of me. Every moment I do that, I'm losing concentration on the present. Beloved, the Bible says to forget what's behind, and that includes all the good things, but it also includes all the bad things. Do you ever constantly remind yourself of a past failure? Does that weigh you down? Does that paralyze you? Do you focus on things from your past, whether it's a grudge you've had with someone, bitterness that you've had in your heart? Do they cause you to lose focus on Jesus? Do they defeat you? Do they weigh you down? I will tell you that that's happened to me. I'll, I'll share this story with you. In the year 2000, dear, right before Deirdre and I got married, I had a huge, the weight of my sin was just so impressed upon my heart and my life. Which, in one way, is a good thing to understand how bad sin is. But I let all my past sins completely cripple me, paralyze me from moving forward. I was in seminary at the time. We, were, we had just gotten married. And I'm telling you, the first six, nine months of our marriage, I dealt with a paralyzing feeling because of my past failures and sins. And it got to the point where I almost hung up ministry altogether. I remember sitting with Deirdre on the bed, and I said, I'm just going to give this up. I'm going to go do something else. I can't get over this. And I want you to know the Lord used my wife that day. She sort of kicked me in the pants spiritually and said, Adam, you're being a defeated Christian. Have you sinned? Have you failed, before, failed the Lord? Yes. Have you confessed that to him? Yes. Has he given you the grace and the mercy to forgive your sin? Yes. Then, Adam, why are you living like a defeated Christian? Why do you keep constantly looking over your shoulder and letting the past dictate your future? Don't you know what Jesus has done for you? He's not only taken away your sin, he's taken away the guilt of that sin. And he's calling you to move forward. And I'm telling you, God used my wife and my heart that day. If she hadn't had that conversation today, I would have probably given it up forever. The lesson is simply this, beloved. It is impossible to move forward if you're always looking behind you. You will lose your speed. You will lose your direction. You will lose your focus. 
God says in his word that mulling over past failures, gloating over past successes, they're both enemies of spiritual progress. So you know what we need to do? Forget what's behind. But the second thing we need to do is this. We need to strain forward to what lies ahead. Look at it in the text the end of verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and what? Straining forward to what lies ahead. The idea behind this, beloved, is continuous effort. It speaks of an aggressive, energetic endeavor to move forward, to strain with every spiritual muscle that you have to keep pushing forward. Beloved, Paul was always ready to move forward. You see, Paul knew that he had made him his own, and Paul knew that through the power of God's Spirit, he would enable him to move forward. And Paul, could, he could pick up that list of those Old Testament saints, and he could see how they had to strain to press on to move forward. Think about it. Didn't Abraham have to press on? Abraham pressed on for years when he didn't have a child, and even after he did have a child, God asked him to take that child and slay him. But Abraham pressed on. He obeyed God. Moses had to press on. He had to deal with the whining and complaining of Israel. He had to deal with 40 years in the desert, but he pressed on. Daniel, when he faced the den of lions, he decided to press on. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they faced the fiery furnace, they decided to press on. They knew that the Christian life wasn't going to be easy, that they had to strain forward. We think about Paul, even in the context of Philippians, he's in this Roman prison. He had been beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. He was pressing on. But maybe most importantly, did not the Lord Jesus Christ press on? Did not he persevere in his faith? When Jesus was abandoned, when Jesus was betrayed, when Jesus sweated drops of blood in the garden, the Bible says he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. And no matter what was going on in his life, he was going to press on. He was going to accomplish redemption for you and for me. He was going to die for your sins and my sins that we might have life in his name A wise coach once said this, if at first the game or the breaks, if they go against you, don't let up. Put on more steam. Press on. Press on. But you know what? The Bible understands the weakness and frailty of man. Our Lord God knows that oftentimes in life, even for Christians, we get weary, we get tired, we get discouraged in our faith. Beloved, Scripture office offers so many verses to comfort us in times like this. Today, I just want to give you two. If you're tired today, if you've pressed on for years and years and you're just worn out with Christianity, let me read to you Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, our God knew that even Christians would get tired. And it says, when you're weary in doing good, think twice. Remember the God that you serve. And remember that he's called you to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, always pressing on in the work of the Lord. Why? Because your work for the Lord is not in vain. You're continually being salt and light in this world that other people might see Jesus in you and glorify God. You're continuing to show mercy to those who need mercy. You're continuing to show compassion to those who need compassion. Continue to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's using you in your life to be a witness for him. And we're talking about things of heavenly gain. Your labor is not in vain. It's not useless. It has eternal value, the Lord says. And all of this, of course, is because His Spirit is working in our hearts. Not that we point people to ourselves, but we point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. In a nutshell, press on. We've seen a description of the race. We've seen pressing on in the race. Finally, very shortly, let's look at the recognition of the race. A mature understanding of of the race. Look at verses 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So as Paul summarizes this, he teaches us that in this race as we're pressing on, he's not alone. All believers are with him. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are with him. And he's saying to us that all believers, in fact, he calls it all those who are mature, let them have this mindset, the mindset that he just described. Think this way, he says. Think this way. The literal meaning is take such a view of the Christian life. View it as this foot race. We know our starting point. We know our ending point. We know the goal is Christ-likeness. We know we're to press on, not looking over our shoulders, but straining towards Jesus Christ to fix our eyes upon him and him alone and to run towards him. And Paul says the mature believer thinks this way. In fact, he says not all believers are mature. He says in this text there are many who are not going to think this way, but God will correct them. God will correct them through his word, through his spirit, and from time to time, even chastening. That was the mature recognition of the race. This morning as we close, can you, like the Apostle Paul, identify that starting point? Can you remember when God got a hold of you? When God laid claim to you? Do you see your goal? Do you understand that one day Jesus is coming back? We're going to be raised with him to be with him in heaven. 
and that through this process we call sanctification, God's conforming us to the image of his son unto Christ's likeness. And within that race, are you pressing on? Or are you like me? Are you, are you, are you constantly looking over your shoulder, remembering all the victories that you've had, maybe remembering all the defeats that you've had, because both of those will weigh you down. Both of those will cause you to lose concentration. Remember, it is impossible to move forward if you're looking behind you. So, beloved, I encourage you, forget what is behind and press on toward what is before. As Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For to do so shows Christian maturity, according to this text, that we should all have this view. I want to end this sermon with the words of a song. The song is written by one of my favorite artists growing up, Stephen Curtis Chapman. You've ever heard of him? This is a song called Not Home Yet. In other words, for you and I as believers right now in this world, sometimes we get weary. Sometimes we want to give up. But let's remember we are not home yet. Listen to this. To all the travelers, pilgrims longing for home, from one who walks with you on this journey called life's road, it is a long and winding road. From one who's seen the view, dreamt of staying on the mountains high, and one who's cried like you, wanting so much just to lay down and die. I offer this. We're not home yet. We're not home yet. Keep on looking ahead. Let your heart not forget. We're not home yet. So close your eyes with me and hear the Father say, welcome home. Let us find the strength in all his promises to carry on. He said, I'll go prepare a place for you. So let us not forget we're not home yet. I know there'll be a moment. I know there'll be a place where we see our Savior and fall in his embrace. So let's not grow weary. We're too content to stay. We're not home yet. Dear Christian, keep pressing on because we're not home yet. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that sometimes our past is our focus. Sometimes we catch ourselves looking over our shoulder monthly, daily, hourly, remembering past victories or contemplating past defeats. Those things, Lord, they cause us to lose focus. It calls us to, to slow down, to lose direction. Lord, let us obey your word today in forgetting what's behind and pressing toward what's ahead. To fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, there might be some here today who are discouraged, who are weary in doing good. Remind them, Lord, that their work and their labor is not in vain. And may we all be steadfast. May we all keep pressing on, understanding that we're not home yet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand.